you imagine this um this sort of rustic village where every person in that village has their role you know the lord in his manor and the blacksmith in his uh, forge everyone with their own role in in the society and i think we've sort of moved on to a situation now where we, we sort of view um, communities as as much more sort of random and chaotic welcome to science for the people i'm rochelle saunders with me today is tim blackburn a professor of invasion biology at University College London. Previously, he was the director of the Institute of Zoology, the research arm of the Zoological Society of London, where he still has a research affiliation. He has been awarded honorary professorships at the universities of Adelaide, Birmingham, and Oxford, and has been named an honorary research associate at the Center of Excellence in Invasion Biology, Stellenbosch. He's here today to talk about his book, The Jewel Box, How Moths Illuminate Nature's Hidden Rules. Tim, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So this is a book about moths, kind of. It's also kind of not about moths. So can you talk to me about the origin story of this book for you? Yes. uh, It goes back a few years, actually. Um, So how to start. Uh, So one of my requirements at UCL is that um, I teach students and one of the things I teach is a field course in ecology. And for many years, that field course has been uh, running up in Scotland. And when I took it over, um, I went up to the site uh, where the course was run uh, to teach the students all the stuff that was, uh, you know, that we were supposed to teach them. Uh, And when I was there, I discovered that uh, the place that we went to had uh, a moth trap. So for those of you that don't know, a moth trap is essentially a box with a bright light on top Uh, and you put it out at night, you turn the light on. And the one thing we all know about moths is that they are attracted to lights. Uh, They get dazzled and confused and then they fall into the box Uh, and you can go out the next morning and you can uh, see what the, the what moths have been attracted to the light. Uh, and this wasn't part of the, you know, the formal schedule for the field course, but I thought it might be interesting to actually, you know, run this moth trap and and see what uh, was attracted out of, of the night. Uh, and I guess one of my aims with the course is to introduce students to elements of biodiversity that, you know, they, they didn't understand or they didn't appreciate before. Uh, and for me, um, the moth trap did exactly the same thing. You know, I thought I knew British biodiversity very well. Uh, and I went on this field course and I ran this and this light overnight. And it was just magical, sort of out of thin air, out of the darkness, this moth trap had conjured this incredible diversity of insects, uh, all sorts of forms and colors and shapes, um, all moths, but just sort of presenting this incredible diversity of, of amazing uh, creatures. Uh, and it just completely hooked me on uh, on trapping moths. Uh, and so every year, you know, I would look forward to going on the field course because I would get to run the moth trap up in Scotland and and see all these incredible creatures. Um, and then at the end of the course, I'd go home and I'd sort of spend a year uh, pining for the, the next opportunity to, to go up and do this. And after about three years of of, uh, of uh, pining for the trap and and missing sort of being in Scotland, um, looking at moths. Um, it suddenly occurred to me that I could get my own moth trap and I could uh, see what, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have to wait for a year, basically. I, I could uh, I could catch moths anytime I wanted to. Um, and so 
yeah, I guess 2018 um, for my birthday, I uh, got my wife to uh, buy me a moth trap. Uh, and it was kind of, it was, yeah, I was all sorts of uncertainty around it because, you know, I live in London, uh, in the borough of Camden. It's in a city. Cities are not notoriously great for biodiversity. Uh, moths are attracted to lights and there's lots of lights in London. So, uh, you know, I'd be competing against lots of other sources to uh, attract moths. So I had no idea whether anything would would appear. We don't even have a garden. Uh, we have a flat in London. Uh, so I, we have a little roof terrace where I, I run the trap. Uh, but when I started out, I had no idea whether anything would appear. Uh, but the moth trap did, you know, this wonderful magic trick uh, in London, the same as it had done in Scotland. Uh, I suddenly realized that there were all these insects in London that I had no appreciation for. And it's just gone from there, really. I've just come completely hooked by the hobby and just completely obsessed by uh, looking at moths. So that's the origin story of your moth catching, moth capping yeah. hobby. Yeah. How does that dovetail into a book? Because your day-to-day research, I think, is more on birds, isn't it? Yes. So I guess in lockdown, in the first lockdown we had in the UK in, in 2020, I was approached by uh, a literary agent who said that uh, she had read some of my work online and she thought I could uh, write quite well and would I be interested in writing a book uh, and as it happened I had for a number of years at the back of my mind had a plan to write a book a popular science book on ecology um, but I'd never been able to work out how to make it interesting so you know what the hook to hang um, hang the whole um, exposition on was going to be uh, and the agent, um, Claire Conrad, who works for, for Janklo, she said, well, why don't you write about the moth trap? Uh, and as soon as she said that, um, everything fell into place. I could see, you know, exactly how I, all the concepts that I kind of wanted to explain uh, in the book, the science of ecology, essentially, how the moth trap could lead into all of these different um, concepts and, uh, and processes and just make a really interesting story, um, you know, to run through the, the whole book. Uh, so at that point, yeah, the, the book was born um, out of the moth trap. I love that. It's um, one of the interesting things about it is I think the when you pick it up and start reading it, it's about moths in a lot of ways, but it's very much more about the ecology and talking about the rules of ecology or the sort of things that underpin the study of ecology. And there's a really good balance there of fascinating information about moths that lead very nicely into the different topics. So I, I do think it was a great way to introduce more from the sort of simpler right to the more complicated topics um, in ecology, some things that I'd never really thought through in the way that you described. So it worked really well. Thank you. Yeah, I, I always say it's not a book about moths, but it's a book that's inspired by moths and illuminated by moths. Um, and what I wanted to try and do is, as you say, is try to try to explain ecological principles. So try and explain how an ecological scientist uh, views the world and how the natural world works. Because, you know, there's lots of popular science books that are about specific organisms or about, you know, specific environments and habitats. Um, and I thought, actually there was a you know an opportunity to do something a little bit different which was to try and explain 
ecological science to a lay audience and then doing that through the medium of the moth trap and some of those incredible organisms and some of you know my personal stories about sort of my experience of them uh yeah i thought that as you say would be a good balance of um of some animals and some science and yeah hopefully uh create an engaging uh sort of narrative that that would lead people into some of the uh the more um sort of heavier science elements but but in a way that was still accessible it was nice to have the moths as a through line as this sort of um example you keep coming back to i mean you talk about a lot of different moths in the book but there's also some that you come back to over and over mm -hmm. again throughout the course of um of the the book and it's nice to have these kind of extended examples um because what i think that helps with and what i certainly found is you very much layer the science. You start with something simple and you layer on a piece of complexity and then you put another piece of complexity on that. There's these kind of layers of complexity that you build up over time. And I definitely found reading the book that it was useful to also have a familiar example to be layering on so that mm -hmm. it was the complexity of the ideas, but also a complexity baked into an example that was easy to kind of map to. So, I mean, as someone who knew almost nothing about moths and only kind of grade school superficial stuff about some of the um, ideas of ecology that you bring into the book, I found it a really useful way to be able to bounce between familiar examples and layer that complexity in. So, I think it worked really well. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I tried to, you know, expand the examples to sort of bring in as, in as many, you know, different species as I could. But ultimately, you know, I think inevitably what you find in science is that, um, especially a, a complicated science like ecology, where there is, you know, potentially so many different species you could study, what, what you tend to find is that there are a few, a few species that become, you know, case studies or particularly well studied. And so a lot of the science relates to those. Um, so inevitably you're sort of drawn back to, um, you know, those species that have had a lot of attention, but at the same time, you know, I tried to sort of add a bit of diversity to the, um, to the example so that it, it wasn't just a book about, you know, a species or two of moths. It was, you know, trying to draw in, um, as much of that diversity as I could. I also want to talk a little bit um, more generally before we dig into some of the details that we have in the book about models, because a lot of what you do is help us construct models mm -hmm. and then remind us that it's a simple model and simple models don't tell us the whole story and then start layering things in to that model to complicate it while also always reminding us this too, still a model. Yeah. So can you unpack the idea of models in particular as they are useful for ecology in particular this kind of these simple models versus more complex ones um, where they can help us and where we always need to remember these are models they don't tell the full story yeah i mean it's, we have a you know we have a really major problem in ecology and and the issue is that you know nature is just endlessly fascinating and different and diverse so you know we share a planet with sort of maybe a million and a half named species you know maybe eight million sort of eukaryotic species so species like us um sort of 
the species that have cells with a nucleus. You know, all of those species do different things um, and they interact amongst themselves and they interact in different ways. And they're made up of, you know, thousands to millions to billions of individuals, all of which potentially are different as well. So there's just an incredible diversity and it's really easy just to get completely overwhelmed and lost by this immense um, range of, of things that we, you know, that we could get into studying. And so trying to pick out the generalities from that is, is really quite daunting. So one of the ways that we try and do it is we just try and really start very simple. You know, what's the simplest, um, you know, level that we can try and understand? And then how do we you know, how do we draw a generality out of that that we can then start to build on? So the whole idea of, of ecological science is that, you know, we break down this incredibly complicated um, world that we live in or we live on um, into sort of smaller and smaller and simpler and simpler fragments. And then we try and understand, you know, the absolute basics of, of the absolute simplest fragments um, and then build from there. Uh, and so the book, you know, is itself um, sort of structured in this way. So, you know, I try and sort of come down at the start to, you know, really that this sort of very simple fact that, you know, every organism uh, is born and, and dies. And those are the two things that we can guarantee um, about um, the lives of every organism. Uh, and then, you know, if that organism can leave, you know, slightly more than one other organism in the next generation, uh, when it dies, then a population will grow. Uh, and what are the consequences of that growth? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's and sort of ultimately, you know, we try and state that in mathematical terms. Um, but like many ecologists, I'm not really a, a mathematician. Um, but, you know, we try and under, underpin um, all of our science with with, uh, you know, some mathematics and some basic models and then and then build on those. Um, but of course, every time you add layers of complexity into models, they you know, they get harder and harder. And in the end, particularly in ecology, you know, we can only go so far in in those terms, and then we have to, you know, try to to talk sort of more in statistical terms, I guess, about balances of probabilities and things. So you know, ecologists they tend to have a bit of physics envy. You know, physicists can make these incredibly precise predictions about you know how the world works, but actually for a physicist the world is relatively simple you know there's only you know maybe what 17 fundamental particles and you know 118 elements and you know as an ecologist you know you just dream of situations where you're working with you know such a a small number of, of variables ecological systems are are just immensely complicated uh, and how do we how do we try and understand that so we, we you know we try and have these simple models uh, and then we try and build on those so I want to start digging into a little bit of the meat of the book. And to do that, um, I'm going to start by getting you to define some terms because I'm very excited for you to say it depends. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think probably the best place to start is with the terms individual and population, because I think we've uh, both used them a couple of times, but yeah. um, those are some of the, I don't know about key units, but those are like important units that ecology cares about. So can you give us some working ecological definitions of individual and population? Yeah. I mean, it, even such simple terms, it, it's really difficult. 
I mean, so as an animal ecologist, you know, an individual uh, is, you know, something of a, a relatively straightforward concept. You know, you and I are individuals. I think, you know, most people would have a uh, an intuitive understanding for what an individual is. It's an organism. Uh, if you're a plant ecologist, it becomes really difficult because, you know, you, you can look at, you know, a, a field of plants and you don't know whether, uh, a, you know, any two stems are different individuals in the in the sense that you and I are individuals or whether they're different stems of the same plant. Uh, so it becomes more complicated. But assuming that, you know, we have an intuitive understanding of what an individual is, uh, then we can think about a population which is simply um, a group of individuals that happen to live in some defined area um, of the world at some specific point in time. And of course, both defining an area and defining a point of time <laughs> are also very difficult as we quickly get into. So yeah. what are some of the challenges with both of those? Yeah, well, you know, area and time, the, the, the sort of area that you would uh, want to study ecology over and the sort of time scales will depend very much on the sorts of organism that you're interested in. Uh, so if you're uh, uh, interested in the ecology of elephants, then you're probably not going to be wanting, for example, to try and census a, a population. So, you know, at the simplest sort of count how many individuals there are in the population on, on a day to day basis, because the population is not going to change significantly. Uh, and equally, you're probably not going to be wanting to study, you know, the population in, say, you know, a hundred square yard area. If you're studying bacteria, which, you know, many scientists do uh, because the rates of population change are very much uh, faster, you know, equally, you're not going to want to census that population on a daily basis, or maybe you do, or at least over a hundred, you know, square yard area because um, the population will change much more quickly. And, um, you know, populations in of bacteria in a hundred yards by a hundred yards are going to be very different to populations of elephants. So, you know, we have to adjust our um, our sort of scales of, of investigation, um, our time scales and our, uh, our areas of study, uh, depending on the sorts of organisms that uh, that we're interested in. And, and this is why sort of many population ecology or many of the fundamental studies in population ecology work on um, sort of microbes, because those populations change very quickly and you can uh, watch them change in a on a microscope slide or in a Petri dish um, on a day to day basis. Uh, whereas um, organisms like elephants or like us, for example, our, our populations change much more slowly. Uh, and yeah, particularly if you've got like a three year PhD <laughs> uh, to try and, you know, make some breakthroughs in science, you're going to get much more data studying bacteria in Petri dishes than you are studying elephants in Kruger National Park, for example. Weird question that hit me as I was reading the book, which is, how much of a working ecologist's work is sort of census work? I mean, counting creatures, then going back after a defined period of time and counting them again. Yeah, a, a lot of it, actually. Um, and, and this is why I, I could never really be a field ecologist, because um, I get very bored counting things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very, very you know, lower, um, very short attention span. Uh, so actually, you know, and what many ecologists do increasingly these days is, you know, sit in front of computers analyzing data. Uh, so, yeah, in the old days, you know, we'd be going out in the field and, and you know, setting out our, you know, staking out our, our census area and counting things and, and observing things. Uh, now there's so much information out there 
um, available uh, just because people have done lots of counts or there is lots of citizen science data or we you know we have information from satellites uh, so yeah in in my in the time of lifetime of my career we've really moved now where um most ecology even you know a good chunk of conservation biology is people sitting in front of computers analyzing data i can't help but think now um if the next government census person who comes to my door i'm going to think of them as a as a ecologist is what i'm going to in my in the back of my head now i think <laughs> well they are yeah they are essentially yeah. essentially right it's a government yeah. ecologist yeah <laughs> i don't know that they'll like it if i tell them that but they'll probably <laughs> And it's kind of interesting because often, you know, often in ecology, you know, we, we count individuals in populations or species, but we also want to append other pieces of information because that helps us understand then sort of some of the variations in ecology. And, you know, you're, the, the government census uh, people are, are no different. They, they're counting, but they also want to get these other pieces of information so they can make sense of the, the changes in the numbers. So you talk about a lot of very cool moths in your book, but I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about the gypsy moth um, because mm -hmm. it is a moth that you come back to a few times um, to help illustrate some different concepts about ecology in the book. Um, so can you give us a quick overview of a quick overview? Can you give us a taste of the gypsy moth and some of the key case studies or aspects of uh some of its um some of its ecology in particular areas that has made it such a really good example for you to come back to yeah i mean before i do that though i would just like to just um make a small digression to just talk about the name of this species because it's something i wrestled with quite a lot so it, the, you know the traditional name of this species is the, is the gypsy moth and this is how we know it in europe uh in the states um where the species um has spread quite a lot over the last century as, as i'll talk about in a minute you know the, the name of this has been changed so it's in in the us now it um it's known as the spongy moth um and this is obviously because you know the name gypsy has some connotations um about the um you know as a as a name that has been given to the you know people of Roma origin and you know some people find this a, a you know a problematic term uh, so I kind of wrestled a lot in the book in terms of whether I sort of went with the traditional name that we've used or whether to use the the new name and in the end um I thought I would go with the the, the traditional name and you know it's it's difficult to sort of justify I think one way or another um you know I think there's pros and cons to both um but I you know I did look into where this name comes from for this particular moth and that seems to be lost in the mists of time um so yeah I just went with the the name that it is you know has has mainly been used in um in the in sort of his history and in in the literature of uh, of ecology um, but I think it is just worth mentioning that uh it's a name that um, may fall out of use um, relatively soon. Uh, in terms of the ecology of the species, though, I mean, it's really fascinating. Uh, so this is a species uh, that's a European species. So in the UK, it's it's gone through uh, sort of waxing and waning of fortunes. So it's a species that was sort of quite widespread across the UK, um, but it went extinct in the 
sort of at the end of the 18th century because the, the UK populations were largely associated with, with wetland areas, um, and particularly the, the Fenlands in the uh, in the east of England. And this is an area that has really rich soil and has been extensively drained and is now one of the sort of the main agricultural um, uh, areas in the UK. So we produce a lot of our food there, but we've done it off the back of draining a lot of wetlands to convert them into, uh, into arable farmland. And that drainage essentially led to the extinction of the gypsy moth in the UK um, a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, but it's a species that has then subsequently recolonized the UK from um, populations in Europe, and that colonization has been accidental. So uh, eggs of this species have been introduced probably on timber products uh, in, imported either by sea or through the, the Channel Tunnel into the into the UK. And it's it's reestablished itself in the London area and it is sort of spreading through the, the southeast of England again, which is, is really interesting. And so it's a species that I... Uh, I do now catch on my roof terrace in London, uh, even though, uh, you know, for most of the last 200, 300 years, that would have been completely uh, impossible to do. Uh, but the the history in the UK is interesting. The, the history of this species in, in the States, uh, in North America, is, is really quite fascinating. Uh, and it goes back to um, sort of the middle of the uh, of the 19th century and uh, a gentleman called Leopold uh, Truvelot, uh, who was a French scientist. Uh, he uh, went over to the States where he was he was working. He was something of a, a polymath. Um, he was interested in, in all different areas of science. But one of the things he was really interested in is, is silk production. So silk is uh, a very valuable commodity. It was um, in the 19th century and it still is. Uh, and obviously a, a lot of the silk uh, worldwide is produced by uh, species of moths and Truvelo was interested into as to whether the gypsy moth could actually be uh, made into a commercial uh, source of silk so he imported some individuals uh, of this species from Europe uh, into North America and his house in uh, Medford in in Massachusetts uh, where he established a, a little colony of this species uh, but at some time in 1868 or 1869, we're not, not exactly certain when, uh, he had a, an accident and some of these moths uh, escaped out of the window of his house uh, into the garden. Um, and he was a little bit concerned about this. Uh, he informed the local authorities that this had happened, uh, although exactly um, what that means is also lost in the mist of time. Uh, but after about uh, 20 years, uh, Truvelo had um, he'd moved on from Medford. He'd gone somewhere else. Uh, somebody else had moved into his house. Uh, but the new owner uh, sort of noticed that there was something of an infestation of caterpillars in the garden. Uh, and uh, so he noticed that, uh, you know, a shed in the garden was that was covered in these moths. And so he he got permission to get rid of his shed. So he sold his shed on. Uh, but very soon after that, uh, the, so the population of Medford sort of suddenly realised that uh, their town was essentially being taken over by caterpillars of this moth. Uh, they sort of nicknamed army worms, and it's it's quite incredible the uh, the abundance of uh, of moths of this species. So the population essentially exploded, uh, and it was the population grew to the extent that essentially throughout this town, there was not a leaf left on any of the trees uh, in, in Medford. Uh, there is um, testimony of the residents from um, sort of the 1880s 
where they're describing how uh, there were so many caterpillars on their neighbors' houses that you couldn't tell what color the houses were painted because they were just completely covered in caterpillars. Uh, people said they couldn't sleep at night because the sound of the caterpillars chewing was like lots of scissors uh, in the gardens. And people would devote hours of, of their day just like trying to sweep these caterpillars up and burn them to try and get rid of them. And then, you know, an hour or so later, there'd just be as many caterpillars as they burn had just, just come back in. Uh, so it's just a remarkable example of, of the capacity of a species um, population to grow. You know, if an individual in a population leaves on average more, you know, than one individual in the next generation, then that population will grow. Uh, and the capacity of population growth to um, cause explosions in populations is just remarkable. Uh, and the gypsy moth, yeah, I mean, it's basically spread from Leopold Truvelo's garden in Medford, Massachusetts in 1868. And it now occupies, oh, that population now covers more than a million square kilometers of Northeast uh, North America. Uh, and although it's not um, present every year in in <laughs> you know, such huge uh, numbers. Uh, it does have outbreak years when it can defoliate huge, huge areas of uh, North American forest. Um, and given that, you know, forestry is a, is an important um, sort of crop in, in that part of the world, it can have really sort of uh, substantial impacts on on uh, forests and, and the ability of, of trees to, to grow. It's, it's a, a remarkable example of how you know, when life gets a toehold, it, it gets an opportunity. It can really take that opportunity. You come back to the gypsy moth a little later in the book to talk uh, in the chapter you're, uh, that you're talking about predation in with a really mm -hmm. fascinating look at, um, as you mentioned, that there are cycles with gypsy moths. They do come into abundances mm -hmm. every, uh, every so often. And you dig in a little bit to what the kind of origins or causes or at least correlations of those abundances are and mm. how complicated it is to find causation or correlation when you're trying to look at those kinds of cycles. Oh yeah. I mean, like one of the things that, yeah, I, I, you know, I hope people take home from the book is just how incredibly hard work it is to understand, you know, the ecology of even a, single population of a single species you know I, I started out you know talking earlier about just how many you know millions of species you know we share our planet with and and how many you know potentially trillions of interactions there may be between um you know different populations of different species um and this just makes it really difficult to understand the ecology of, of even one species and this is why you know you, you keep coming back to a, a relatively small number of case studies because you know trying to do that work on lots of species is just you know just impossible it's you know it's more work than uh, there are ecologists you know in the world to do it um so yeah so something like the you know the gypsy moth trying to understand why you know, its population explodes in some years, you know, why this incredible abundance that, you know, it originally displayed when it was taking over Medford and then spreading across Massachusetts, you know, why that, you know, it hasn't persisted in that abundance and why, you know, populations, you know, have been suppressed, um, but why sometimes that suppression doesn't work uh, is, yeah, just a, a fascinating and complicated story. You know, and it, it comes back again to the, you know, this idea of, of, um, sort of trying to model 
uh, how populations work and how species work and trying to make these models uh, sort of very simple. So when we try to understand predation, or at least the early models that try to understand predation made some simplifying assumptions. So they kind of assumed that, you know, you had a, a species of prey and you had a specialist predator and that predator could feed on the prey. And if there were lots of prey, then, you know, that, that gave the predator a, an opportunity to, um, uh, to build up its population, but then that predator eats down the prey. And then the, inevitably the, as the prey population crashes, so the predator population crashes too, because it's, you know, it's overeaten its prey. And this leads to, to, you know, ups and downs in the prey population and ups and downs in the predator population. And so both of them can go through these cycles. And that's kind of what we see in, in the gypsy moth, you know, some years it's incredibly abundant and um, some years it's not. Uh, and this could well be because predators are, are eating down the population. But when you actually dig into real life and you start to try and work out, you know, what's going on in reality, you find out that actually there's probably not a specialist predator for the gypsy moth that's driving population cycles in that. Um, but then there are predators that eat it. And one of the ones that's particularly important is um, is rodents in, in North American forests. And they, they eat the pupae of, of, of these gypsy moths. And that, you know, potentially drives the population down. But mice are not specialist predators. They're generalist predators. And so they can eat other things. And so their populations don't crash if there's uh, not lots of, of gypsy moth pupae. So, you know, what's driving the cycles in that situation? Um, and then essentially, you know, you can work back through the different um, elements of the ecosystem and you can you can basically show that actually what really matters in this case is is the oak trees in the forests. And so the oak trees, um, you know, have years where they just don't produce any acorns uh, for various probably environmental reasons. And then that leads to crashes in the mouse populations. And, and when the mouse populations crash, that gives opportunities for the gypsy moth populations to explode because there are not lots of mice eating their pupae. Um, and so a couple of years after the um, the oak trees fail to produce acorns, then you get explosions in, in the gypsy moth populations, um, which can then be uh, sort of brought down by other things, not necessarily by the mice. Um, but the point is, you know, we have these we have these really sort of simple models um, about how sort of predators might control populations, which leads us to expect cycles uh, in in prey and in predators. And when we see these cycles, um, that doesn't even necessarily mean that those simple models hold because the natural world is really complicated. Um, and, you know, it takes, it you know, years and years of work by dozens of scientists to uh, to nail down what's really going on in reality. So I think that, you know, the, the classic quote that we use a lot in ecology is that um, all models are wrong, um, that some are useful. Uh, and so, but understanding the models and, you know, why they might be wrong sort of helps us to understand what's going on in the real world. Uh, and yeah. It's a great illustration of how there's not simple causation in ecological systems. There's a lot more at work to that sort of creates these things that seem, you know, like a cycle of gypsy moss where they, um, you know, every X number of years, give or take a few, uh, they burst and sort of have a, a good year or a bad year, depending on how you look at it, yeah. I guess. Yeah. 
Um, and that seems like there's something, I think, to a lot of people, it seems like there should be a simple explanation for that, in part, because everybody, I think, has a sort of vibe for basic predator-prey relationship. Yeah. Um, and it's such a great illustration of you have to go down into a sort of nitty-gritty and look a lot farther than you think you do to not just a specific predator to a more generalist predator, and then what's causing that and what's causing that. Um, Really fascinating example that I think made me think about uh, the world around me a little differently and a little bit more deeply. I just really liked, I never thought the acorns would be the thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, this is the reason we need science really is because Mm. You know, our common sense often lets us down and, you know, anyone that that ever tells you, oh, it's, you know, it's obvious what's going on. Yeah, you're probably not an ecologist. I think as well, especially with things like ecology, because I mean, I, I, I live in the UK now, but I grew up in Canada and in grade school, I'm thinking when I was seven, eight years old, nine years old, that kind of age, I remember doing in our science class um eco like ecology topics talking about predator prey talking about this kind of life cycle of you know if there are lots of foxes eating the rabbits then that will create this sort of cycle right this like boom and bust cycle mm. at different times for these different organisms so i think part of it is as well that because a lot of us have some some exposure to the simpler ideas of ecology, it's very easy for us to recognize some of the patterns of simple and then project simplicity, the simplicity we were taught onto that without necessarily acknowledging that there's a lot more under the hood there that you just can't teach an eight-year-old. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'll confess I hated ecology when I was at school and even when I was an undergraduate. Um, because, yeah, I mean, I, I could never really see what the generalities were and, you know, all the examples and never seemed to be really interesting to me. Um, and it wasn't really until I was, you know, through my PhD and sort of into my postdoc research that I, I started to, you know, get an understanding for, oh, you know, that actually, yeah, there are some regularities here. There's, you know, there's some structure there's some rules underlying this and it's not just a series of you know of interesting but different case studies um and yeah that's when i <laughs> that's when i really started to get into ecology but yeah i think it it's easy to it's easy to put people off really i mean even though you know nature is endlessly fascinating um i'm not sure that the the science of ecology is always necessarily explained that well and particularly as you say at a at a simple level and and again one of the motivations for for the book is to you know try and explain you know how we think the world really does work and that you know there are rules and obviously there's a lot of fuzz because that the way the world is incredibly complicated but there there is some you know underlying um structure here um that that you know does really you know help explain the diversity that we see around us Another thing I remember um, talking about when I was seven, eight years old in those same classes was the concept of niches, or is it niches? I never know how to pronounce <laughs> that term. Is there an official way? Depends which side of the Atlantic you're on. Uh, it's ooh, very ooh. Niche. it's a niche thing over here, but a, a niche is uh, is I think uh, is is the uh, the American English now. 
All right. Well, I live in the UK, so I'll go niche. Plus that is my instinct because that's how it looks like it should be pronounced. Mm-hmm. So we'll be niche here today. Okay, um, cool. <laughs> uh, niche is another one of those topics that I remember talking about as a kid. I remember being exposed to in a very simple way and thinking like I had a pretty good handle on. And your book, again, does a really interesting, um, great job of complicating the idea of a niche. <laughs> Um, which I really enjoyed. This is probably one of the parts of the book that I really like most enjoyed digging into. I always really oh. like it when something I think is simple is like galaxy brained for me. So this was <laughs> this is one that I really enjoyed. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that like simple view of a niche and then how we start to add and layer complexity onto that I, that sort of like grade school idea of niche? I'm glad you enjoyed that bit because that's probably the bit that I, that I struggled most with writing, and and that's probably because it's the thing that's closest to my area of research. Oh, interesting! So a little it, too close to it, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those yeah. things. That, yeah, you know, when you when you're really aware of all the nuances and complexities, it, it makes it very difficult to sort of pull that general thread. Whereas for a, a lot of the rest of the book, it, because it's a little bit further from my you know specific expertise, I, I was able much more to gloss over the, the complexities and you know or you know not try and dumb the dumb down the issues but nevertheless sort of you know walk a, a smoother path through it you had but, a better yeah. a better vibe for where the general line was yeah i mean it's sort of the whole sort of niche issue it kind of relates to communities of of organisms and you know what determines which groups of organisms can can live together and it's it's that sort of step up in complexity and in, in understanding ecological systems where i think we have the greatest difficulties, you know, when we're thinking about populations of, you know, you know, like the gypsy moth, for example, and the things that might sort of affect that population, we're generally thinking of, you know, no, no more than a handful of organisms, and we can sort of work out the interactions between them, you know, to, to a, you know, a reasonably good degree. But as soon as we start to think about communities of organisms and all the different species that might live together and what determines that, then it's it becomes essentially impossible to to use those sorts of population models and we have to you know change our way of, of thinking about it and it's yeah i think it, it's it's quite difficult you know as I, as I said earlier you know every every species is unique and and different and and lives its life or the, the individuals in that species live their lives in uh in in different ways and so we can simplify that to think about you know the niche of a species which we might think about as um you know the role it plays in an ecological system or the set of conditions it requires to you know survive and reproduce and, and persist in an environment and i guess you know the simplified view of ecology is that all organisms have their own niche they, they all have you know a slightly different way of doing things and that enables different organisms to live together uh, in an environment because you know no two things are, are living their lives in exactly the same way but when you actually start to you know dig down into communities it becomes very difficult to you know often to see what it is that that species are, are doing differently and um sort of i highlight that with a uh, a little group of three moths that um that you know you can often catch together uh, in a moth trap in in you know different parts of the uk uh, one of those species is helpfully called the uncertain, which uh, I think is, is one of my favourite names for uh, for any moth, and it's I think it's actually a really good name for this particular. Uh, it's a great know, chapter name. And, and topic. You know, it's com- I, I find 
you know the science of communities to be really uncertain and so to, to be able to illustrate it with with this species was was quite nice but i it it wasn't really for that reason that i chose it it's because there are two species in the uk that are really similar and very difficult to tell apart so the the rustic and the uncertain and the uncertain is probably named because it's you know it's difficult to tell it from the rustic um, and then there's a third species that's sort of spread into the UK recently called vines rustic. Um, and these three species, they essentially look more or less identical. You know, I don't, I can't believe any like visual predator could tell them apart. Uh, when you dig down into, you know, how they live their lives, they're all sort of pretty generalist species. They tend to fly at the same time. Their caterpillars eat more or less the same sorts of plants. You know, they have similar sort of annual life cycles um and yet these species you know live together side by side and it's you know they're essentially doing the same thing um and, and how is that possible and so you know our, our science of community ecology i think has moved from uh kind of a niche-based view so that everything has its own role um in in a community so i sort of uh, i talk about this sort of georgian british village idyll where you know you imagine this um this sort of rustic village where every person in that village has their role you know the lord in his manor and the blacksmith in his uh, forge everyone with their own role in in the society and i think we've sort of moved on to a situation now where we, we sort of view um communities as as much more sort of random and chaotic uh and so there's op opportunities for, for species that do very similar things to live together and a lot of this comes down to um sort of more um sort of chance if you like a, a a random element to you know maybe what gets into the community first or you know what what can grab the resources while they're there uh, and so we we've gone from a you know a situation where uh you know we view communities as as sort of regular structured entities to being much more haphazard collection of organisms uh, and exactly how those communities then get built uh is you know is a fascinating topic that um i don't think i do justice to at all in the book but uh you know certainly something that i tried to express you know this difference between uh sort of order and chaos in in how uh in how life uh, around us works it feels like there should be an explanation underpinning that that they're all different but they're all the same so how does that work and there may be something in there, but I like that that complexity makes things messy. Yeah. I, always, I always like things when they get messy. I don't know why. Yeah. Well, also, what you know, I guess when I got into the moth trapping, I guess I thought that the moths and the, the sort of the abundances of them and the, you know, the appearances and which species would appear, I just assumed that would be that pretty much the same every year. And you only have to be trapping for two or three years to suddenly you know basically just have the reality of, of ecological theory just thrust into your face it's like wow you know that species that last year i caught loads of you know where's that this year and also oh, and this this species that you know i caught one of and i thought wow that's you know that's really interesting last year and this year it's really common uh, and you know things will disappear for a few years and suddenly they'll come back or you know one year spring will be bad and there'll be hardly anything and then you know the next year it'll be amazing and you know there's a lot of you know a lot of essentially I, I don't know if it's randomness but there's a lot of 
um, variation in you know in communities of of species that is very difficult to explain. Um, and yeah, trapping moths just really sort of thrusts that uh, that in your face. Really, another reason why you know I think they're a really good group of organisms to try and you know use to explore ecological uh, systems, just because you know all of ecology is there and all of ecology is you know is in your moth trap. Well, and like you said, because the life cycle of a moth is much smaller than ours, if you if it's a hobby, if you have a moth trap, it's something, it's a change you can witness. And those cycles or patterns or complexity or chaos, you actually have the opportunity to witness it in a sort of way that is meaningful to our lives with something like a moth than if you're you know, even cats and dogs or something like that. It's like you say, you can see those cycles or those changes um, shown to you night by night in um, just what shows up in your box, which I find really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's really, it's particularly interesting at the moment as, you know, as we're seeing uh, the climate change and, and change quite rapidly because, you know, species with relatively, you know, short life cycles like moths you can really see their response to to those changes so in london and in the southeast of england you know we're seeing a lot of species sort of now coming in you know colonizing from the continent um you know as the temperatures warm they're they're spreading in and you can essentially year on year watch their their progress across the country so you know i've got sort of friends and colleagues that trap moths in you know Oxford and Cambridge and you know other parts of the country around London and you know I was catching things that hadn't yet reached their garden a couple of years ago but you know now suddenly those uh, species are appearing and essentially you know just year on year you can watch the advance of some species across the country you can watch the retreats of others uh, you know the, the responses of these things to you know changes in the environment um are very rapid and the, as i said you know it's really in your face and it, it it's in your it's in your moth trap i mean that vines rustic that i mentioned earlier is a really good example you know before the you know the start of the 20th century that you know there've been hardly any records of, of that species in the uk um but from about the middle of the the 20th century on it's you know it's really started to spread across um across um england and you know and more widely across the uk uh, and you know there are various other species that have you know following and afterwards it's it's really fascinating i want to talk a little bit about the word extinction because it's a word that appears a lot in your book in a way that i think a lot of pop science readers are not used to seeing it used because of mm. course when we're talking about ecology when we're talking about communities um there can be communities that go extinct Whereas we're used to sort of seeing that word in terms of there are no more of this organism left anywhere. Um, in your book, often you're referring to there are no more of these creatures left in this particular area, in this particular, this particular population has gone extinct. But you also talk, uh, there's a whole chapter in the book that talks about migrants mm. and how that patchiness where um, there can be a population extinction in this patch but not in this patch over here. And then maybe eventually they repopulate that patch. So I do want to talk a little bit about that word extinction because Mm. it is such a loaded term for most of us in this day and age, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of baggage on the term uh, extinction. And it is a word that 
um, as I was reading through your book, I realized that that word still has a lot of different meanings and it is, quote unquote, sort of natural for things to go extinct in this kind of way and even in broader ways as well. So can you talk a little bit about the sort of different layers of extinction that we kind of have going on and maybe also a little bit about how that word has maybe the baggage around that word has Mm. changed in your field? Yeah. So um, I guess, so in in the chapter on migration, um, that's where, you know, the E word sort of starts to, to, to get banded around. And that's because when we, uh, when we think about a population of organisms, so, you know, a group of um, individuals of a given species giving in a living in a given area at a, you know, a given point in time, you know, it's possible for all the individuals in that population to die. Um, and then, you know, that population essentially goes extinct. Um, and that's actually not an uncommon process um, in populations and particularly when populations are small, you know, just a few individuals. And particularly when individual when populations live in in ephemeral habitats, so you know the example I use actually is ponds because they're uh, they're a, a sort of environment that it's it's easy for people to visualise, and you can also you know you can also contemplate a situation where you have a you know a hot dry year and a pond dries up, and then any organism that then relies on living in the water in that pond you know is quite likely to, to go extinct. Um, but then the pond fills up again and what you find is that you know life comes back and one one way it comes back is because of of this uh, process of migration um migration also actually has a number of of different uh sort of connotations and and meanings um in ecology but the point of that chapter is that you know individuals move around and they can colonize areas populations can go extinct from areas and the balance between colonization and extinction means that uh you know populations and species can persist in areas where uh you know without this movement they they wouldn't otherwise be able to do so uh, i guess extinction you know in in the sort of wider context uh is is a concern because you know populations can go extinct uh, but then they can uh, sort of reappear if they get colonists from other populations. But the issue is if all populations of a species disappear and the species goes extinct, uh, then there is no way back for the species. And and that's, I guess, in in uh, sort of more general parlance, you know, that's what we're concerned about uh, now at the moment, uh, because actually we are in a situation where, you know, we're losing uh, all populations of, of species and we're losing species to extinction. So uh, it is worth pointing out that, yeah, the, the rate of loss of species has gone up a lot um, over the past few hundred years as humans are, are impacting on the environment. Um, and that actually reflects just a much higher rate of loss in populations. You know, So for a species to go extinct, it has to lose all its populations. Uh, so humans have been driving uh, lots of populations uh, extinct. And as a result of that, uh, we're actually now starting to lose uh, species at a much higher rate than uh, than is natural. So, you know, I should say that, you know, just, you know, as with individuals, you know, all individuals are born and then they die. The same is true for species. So all species are born. Um, all species at some point will go extinct. Um, but what really concerns us is the rate at which we're losing species. And that's 
um, you know, why we're particularly worried at the moment, because the rate at which species uh, are going extinct has gone up probably, a, you know, a thousand times relative to its natural rate. And that's because of human impacts on the environment. I think as well, there's a similar conversation to be had about the idea of species invasion or invasive species. There's obviously examples like with the gypsy moth, where a person literally brought it with them across an ocean, yeah. uh, crossing that maybe it might have made otherwise in a very small chance of, or maybe eventually, mm. um, but was much less likely had someone, had a person not you know picked it up, put it in a box and brought it with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, there is very natural migration. Some habitats change, they shift around. Nothing in nature is static, despite yeah. the fact that uh, people have a tendency to impose a staticness upon yes. the nature around us, don't we? In a yeah. way that is very unnatural. We're like, that, that's the perfect nature. I'll just have that forever, please. Yes, yeah. I mean, as you know, as Heraclitus, who said, you know, change is the only constant. Mm. Um, yeah. So natural systems, you know, <laughs> are constantly changing. The issues that we have is, you know, how they're doing that and the rates at which um, they're doing that, and and that's what concerns us. You know, just as with you know climate change, although the climate's always changed, um, it's almost never, if ever, if ever, has changed at the rate at which it's changing now. Uh, you know. Yeah, species have gone extinct um, at higher rates than they are currently going extinct. But, um, you know, we see those episodes in the fossil record and we we label them mass extinctions. You know, so an asteroid strikes the planet and, you know, the extinction rate goes up. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a sobering thought that humanity is about as good for the, <laughs> the planet as an asteroid strike. Um, so it's it's you know it's not that things are changing; it's the rates at which they're changing, and the the consequences of that for you know the ability of the Earth to support life um, and the ability of um, you know individual species on Earth to persist in in the face of those changes. Definitely complicated and made more complicated by the addition of people. Um, yeah. Another thing you talk about in the book that. Um, I'm actually going to read a quote, which really stuck with me uh, from your book. Um, you say, I've been studying ecology for more than 30 years now. I was drawn to the field because I love the natural world and was motivated to understand how it works. Increasingly, though, the answers to my research questions come down to what people are doing. Humanity has invigilated its way into every mechanism underpinning natural systems. We are now a major contributor to every ecological process that determines the content of my moth box. And that is really, especially, um, and I don't know how, how hyperbolic it might be, but the idea that in, you know more and more of your research questions that you aren't thinking about in terms of what is the human impact on X are mm. ultimately resolving to it's the human impact on right. X. That's quite startling. Like I, I know that there are a lot of people who go and look at the natural world to find the human imprint on it. And I'm glad there are people doing that and I want them to keep doing that. But I think what makes that quote memorable is even for the scientists who aren't actively searching for that imprint, quite often that is the answer to the questions you're asking, which it, it says it's it says something pretty significant. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, I think often we kind of assume that you know what we see out there you know in, in nature is 
you know is how you know how it's always been or how it is and you know often what we don't see is that actually what we're studying are systems that you know have been hugely impacted and hugely changed by humans even before you know ecological science um came along to to study them so you know we can you know we're perfectly capable of of you know seeing those natural processes and studying those natural processes but we always have to remember that you know actually the you know what we're studying could well have, have already been changed so you know some of my work um is on birds and i've you know i've done a fair bit on on bird extinction and you know we have driven so many bird species extinct over the past few thousand years that actually it's it you know it literally has changed our understanding of of the evolutionary processes that that drive diversity so you know we tend to think of um you know so i've, I've done some work looking at um extinction and how that um affects our understanding of the evolution of flightlessness so if we think about flightlessness in birds um you know these days we tend to think about um you know so which birds are flightless well you know we've got ostriches and emus and kiwis and penguins um one or two others that's about it um but a few thousand years ago you know we had flightless woodpeckers you know we had um big flightless pigeons like the dodo flightless hoopoos flightless ibis so actually you know the rates at which bird groups lost flightlessness is much greater than than we would realize from just studying the species that are extant today so what you know once you take into account all the flightless species that human have sort of driven extinct you actually realize that you know that the the move from being flighted to flightless is a much more common evolutionary transition um than than you would um realize if you just studied the the species that are extant today because flightless birds are very easy for you know people to catch as, as we spread out across the the globe and those are the species we tend to drive extinct so you know we have fundamentally changed the you know the the, the world as as we see it I also remember uh, you talking about um, how our fishing is impacting things like the size of cod. Yeah, uh, they're becoming smaller because we want big cod. We want to catch big cod. So a really good strategy um, adaption is now suddenly being a smaller cod. Yeah, yeah. So we we are literally driving the evolution of you know of how these fish live their lives. I mean, it's you know it's amazing we're we're changing the world in so many fundamental ways and uh yeah those eras you know you, you read about the you know the history of the cod fisheries and, and people essentially being able to you know lower a bucket over the side of a boat and just pull it up full of cod you know we, we've we've destroyed that abundance uh but equally we've you know we've changed the the conditions for the individuals in those populations if they you know if they spend their time growing big they're not going to um get to a point where they're going to be able to reproduce so they have to reproduce earlier and smaller so we are we are an evolutionary force Tim, it has been lovely there are so many things we didn't get a chance to talk about that are in your book so i just hope the listeners pick it up because there's a lot of really fascinating stuff in here uh, both about moths but what moths can illuminate about stuff we think we know a lot of us but it turns out we don't really um so thank you very much i do have uh, one final question for you and that is what is your white whale moth what's the moth that you haven't found yet in your moth box but every every day when you go and check it you're like mm, i hope this one's in there you get that like little spark of hope oh gosh so yeah i mean i, I 
so in in the book you know i talk about um the, you know, the death's head hawk moth and you know this remarkable big hawk moth you know it's you know it's got the wingspan of a small bird and it's got you know it, it's got this uh, sort of skull mark on the on the back of its thorax and if you poke it it, it will squeak like a mouse uh, and I, you know, I say, oh God, I, you know, I dream of opening the moth trap and and seeing, you know, that skull mark on the death's head hawk moth looking back at me. Um, and actually, I was running a field course in in Norfolk last October, and with a couple of colleagues, and, and we were moth trapping every day. And and I opened the moth trap one morning, and then immediately sort of put the lid sort of back on it. It's like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> yeah, you need to see this. And and there was a death's head hawk moth in in the moth trap. Um, and you know it's like god you know i wrote in the book that you know i dream of this moment and it it really lived up to you know all my expectations i mean it was just an amazing day you know we we sort of basically spent the day carrying this moth around and <laughs> you know and photographing it and showing it to people and it, it you know put it out the next evening and it and it went but um it was just fantastic so of course then you, you think about oh what's the next thing and at the moment mm-hmm. I, I guess um it's the convolvulus hawk moth is is the next one. Um, it's you know it's another large species of hawk moth. It's a relatively rare immigrant to the UK from uh, from the continent. Uh, last year there was you know there was a, a bit of an influx of them um, in sort of late summer, early autumn, and you know as there is most years. And I was kind of hoping that you know maybe one would would make it to my moth trap um and it never did so yeah maybe this year is is the year when uh when i get the convolvulus hawk moth but uh yeah i mean having having <laughs> having said how i you know i dream about catching a death's head hawk moth and then actually catching them which is really you know not a common event at all uh in the uk maybe maybe i'm just now being greedy by uh <laughs> by dreaming of the next one but i oh, guess no. it's something that, that we always do you always got to have a dream, right? When you yeah. when you when you get this dream, then the next thing is okay. What's yeah. the next? What's the next one that I hope that I hope appears in my box yeah, that I can yeah, see I, and photograph and remember this, as that one? I think this is why the natural world is you know in such trouble because you know it's like oh we always move on to the next the next desire mm, the next thing that we want. <laughs> is there sort of as a person who got into ecology? Has the natural world like dampened for you at all as someone who like works with it or focuses on it as a profession or has it your wonder love of it just changed and shifted? I think it's changed and shifted. I, th- yeah. I think I think the advantage for me is that I'm an ecologist who spends most of their working life staring at a computer screen. Mm. So, you know, I actually go out and and look at wildlife you know i i watch birds i catch moths you know that's my hobby and and so because it's my hobby and because it's something i do not for work you know i think it's maintained my love of actually going out and doing it i think if i was forced to go out you know day after day to count organisms and that was my work then it would probably uh, sort of dampen my enthusiasm to do that on my days off but because uh, you know, on my days off, I get to do that. Then it's yeah, the the wonder of the the natural world is has never gone away for me. And and if anything, you know, studying it and sort of understanding it and trying to you know tease apart the processes that make it work, I think that's just made it you know more special and more magical for me. I'm really lucky that you know I get to think about think about this stuff in my working day 
and then on my days off i can actually go out and, and look at those those organisms and those two those two things reinforce reinforce each other it yeah keeps me motivated sitting in front of the computer and it also um yeah makes it special when i actually you know leave my office and go out and yeah open the moth trap and see what's there as someone who does this both as a line of work and uh, is deeply invested as a hobby as well, is there something you see in other bird watchers, other trappers, other people who are engaging with the natural world around them as hobbyists in some way that sort of like twig your more scientist ecological brain as someone who is more in depth in a different kind of way? Um, during your working hours that you go, mm, I wish I like your enthusiasm. I just wish you wouldn't do X. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. I mean, you know, I, I guess, you know, it's the, the motivations for doing it is, is always interesting. And I, I guess, you know, for a lot of people, there is just this desire to make lists and to, you know, tick things off and to just see more and more. Um, and I, I, you know, I certainly see that in me. Um, but I, I I don't think I ever really um, I'm not sure I really question people's motivations for doing it because mm -hmm. you know if people are getting pleasure out of it that's great and for things like you know bird watching and moth trapping you know actually you know those hobbies are sources of information that scientists can use to understand how the the world works so you know good on anyone that that wants to do that um, I guess the only thing I you know the only thing I motivation i don't understand is you know people that want to go out and kill things um and you know they get a um you know a, a pleasure from that but um yeah i mean it, it, i should say you know it for those you know because often it's not clear you know the moth trap it catches the moths it doesn't kill them so they you know they sit in the box um i can go and see what's there and then i can let them go and they'll you know they'll fly off and they'll be they'll be perfectly fine um so as long as you know people's motivation is to you know, is to see things and, um, but to live and let live, then, uh, yeah, I'm happy for any motivation to, um, to drive people. Tim, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. And I really enjoyed the book. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's been a real pleasure to, uh, to talk about it. And, and thank you very much for, for letting me do that. And if you want to read more about Tim Blackburn, his research or his book, as per usual, we will have some links for you to click in the show notes for this episode, which you can find in your podcatcher of choice or in the show notes for this episode at scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>